Welcome to the Mid-Atlantic Championship Podcast, the podcast that travels back in time to review classic episodes of Jim Crockett Promotions' Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling as it appears on the NBC Universal streaming service Peacock, as well as internationally on the WWE Network. Before we begin today's voyage, I'd just like to note we have social media on several platforms. Our Twitter is the most active, but we have a Facebook page, Instagram, and more. Just search at Mid-Atlantic Pod and look for the logo. And if you want to follow along with us but don't have access to Peacock or the network, you can still do so by heading over to the mighty midatlanticgateway.com and checking out David Tobb's reviews of these classic shows. We'd also appreciate you heading over to youtube.com slash midatlanticpod where you can find full podcasts, truncated versions of classic episodes, plus special audio and video clips exclusive to our page and often with the great assistance of the mighty Mid-Atlantic Gateway website. Go to youtube.com slash midatlanticpod and please subscribe, watch, and like the videos. It will be doing us a great service. Now with all that out of the way, today in episode 49, we take a look at the television that was taped on Wednesday, December 29th, 1982 at the WPCQ Studios Channel 36 in Charlotte, North Carolina and began airing in local markets beginning that weekend of Saturday, January 1st, 1983. I'd like to bring in my co-host right now, Roman Gomez. Roman, how are you today? I am doing good, enjoying a little R&R today and just uh, resting up and uh, looking forward to doing this podcast. And Roman, I'm glad you got a little bit of rest because we start the show hot. Match already in the ring and it's a good one. The Boogie Woogie Man, Jimmy Valiant and his protege, Mike Rotundo against the House of Humperdinck's Paul Jones and the one-man gang, our referee for the day, Stu Schwartz. Mike Rotundo is now the NWA Mid-Atlantic Television Champion, having defeated the departing bad, bad Leroy Brown on Christmas Day in Greensboro. Rotundo started this match in peril at the hands of the bad guys and pretty much stayed that way for the first two minutes and 20 seconds that we saw until he was able to fight off number one Paul Jones and make his way over to the Boogie Woogie Man for the hot tag. As soon as he did, Boy from New York City hits, which means the WWE overdub hits harder Valiant came in and took over on Jones until he's able to tag the gang back in. And then we get a face-off, and it's pretty obvious, Roman, that we have the boogie-woogie man's next obstacle to overcome from Sir Oliver Humperdinck. Any thoughts on the one-man gang getting together here with Jimmy Valiant? Gang, a a man of of limited skill set right now, but of ample size. And you have a guy with the boogie-woogie man, Jimmy Valiant, who always has gotten a whole lot out of doing a lot less. Yeah, and I thought this match could have been the TV main event. You know, they joined it in progress and just kind of funny to me how after a couple minutes when Valiant comes in, they hit his music, which means we get the WWF overdub. I just thought that was kind of unusual. And at the end of this match, Rotundo gets splashed, but then totally no-sells it to mix it up with everybody else. and. I don't know. I, that's something that jumped out at me right away, how he no-sold the one-man gang splash. But yeah, one-man gang and Jimmy Valiant looks like a new feud up on the horizon. Yeah, Roman, not only that, there was some questionable refereeing here when it came to that pin that, that Mike Rotundo took because the music stopped. The two squared off one-man gang and Jimmy Valiant, and Valiant got the advantage. Then Paul Jones came in illegally, and he and Valiant spilled to the floor. 
Then it was Gang and Rotundo squaring off in the ring, and Rotundo came off the ropes. Humperdinck tripped Rotundo. The gang delivered the big splash that would end up being rechristened way down the line as the 747. And at the end of the day, yeah, Rotundo jumped up, but he shouldn't have been the one that was getting pinned. It was the one-man gang actually pinned the illegal man, but the decision stood. The match went three minutes and 15 seconds, and the House of Humperdinck gets the victory here. And Mike Rotundo, your new TV champion, ultimately is the one who took the loss there, Roman. Yeah, kind of surprising. You know, you figure they would have wanted to put him in the spotlight a little bit. He won the belt on Christmas night against Leroy Brown. And, you know, this match is airing January 1st. So less than a week after he wins the, the belt, they've got him jobbing on TV. Yeah, especially because he didn't take the loss in some sort of weird way to Paul Jones. It was Jones that went bailing out there with Jimmy Fallon. It's gang that gets this illegal pin. And at the end of the day, as we mentioned, one-man gang is going to be the one squaring off with the boogie-woogie man, Jimmy Valiant. But maybe a, a picking of the nits there. But it uh, it stuck out to us with the, the keen eye. And I'm sure it did to many of the wrestling fans that were watching during that time. But those wrestling fans would forget about any of not that nonsense really, really quickly. Because the show went to break. And when it came back, we had the managing editor of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, Bill After, alongside Bob Cottle at the podium. Cottle is holding a copy of the March 1983 edition of the magazine. And After is there to announce that Roddy Piper has won the 1982 Pro Wrestling Illustrated Achievement Award for the most inspirational wrestler as voted on by fans of the publication. Piper isn't there, so After gives the plaque to Cottle who then introduces the VTR of the Rowdy One being jumped by Greg Valentine and Ric Flair. We won't play the beatdown that Piper suffered, but here's Bob Cottle talking to Bill Apter. As right now, we'd like to introduce Bill Apter, who is the senior editor of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Bill, welcome to Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. Thank you very much, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. Here's the magazine, and you had a a contest in this, and we understand that you have some tremendous news for all the fans, uh, Bill. I certainly do. This is the uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated Award for Inspirational Wrestler of the Year. And the fans were asked to vote by ballot who they thought was the Inspirational Wrestler of the Year, and it was overwhelming. The winner was Roddy Piper. That's the plaque and all that Roddy Piper will receive, right, Bill? Absolutely. Now, the votes were uh, were generally uh, sent in by the fans with explanations that uh, Roddy has made himself a top contender for Ric Flair's title, and also because of his uh, war and his quest to uh, rid this area of of Sir Oliver Humperdinck and his uh, and his army. All right, talking about the votes, right here is the story in the magazine, and I right. believe it says he had twenty one thousand seven hundred twenty eight votes. Bill. That's right, which is one of the uh, largest counts of any vote we got uh, this year in our year end awards. Well, I know that Roddy Piper is going to be be very very proud of this. And as you heard, our fans, I think, are going to be ecstatic about it. I think so. I think so. And I'd like to leave this with you to give to Roddy Piper, who can't be here this uh, this time. All right, Bill. Thank you very much. Thank you very Pleasure. much. All right, fans. There it is, the award to Roddy Piper. Now, we have a match right here featuring Roddy Piper, something I think you'll really want to see in a match against Ric Flair. So let's watch it right here. After we relive that moment of Roddy Piper getting his face ground across the studio floor by Greg Valentine and Ric Flair, Bob then introduces another pre-tape video, this one of Piper sitting in front of the Worldwide Wrestling set and still very, very emotional. They really 
Work Roddy Piper over, and if it had been for the fact that Piper got a little bit of help, there's just no telling what really would have happened to him. Well, uh, Piper, of course, after that, and you can imagine just his feelings toward Greg Valentine and also toward Ric Flair, and this is something I think has been building with Roddy Piper for quite some time. Let's hear a comment now from Roddy Piper. I'm supposed to sit there. <laughs> you just seen him rub my face all on the ground. <laughs> They've been telling you how depressed I am. <laughs> supposed to sit here and feel sad and bleak. I'm supposed to sit here and snivel and cry. I'm supposed to sit here and pretend that I'm all broken up and forever and ever I am never going to wrestle again because someone beat me up. Wrong, 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 Gertrude. It ain't the first time for me, brother. It ain't the first time someone has taken me and made me grind flesh off my face. It ain't the first time someone has taken me and run me around, Flair. I get one shot to you. One more shot is all you'll give me, you snivelly coward. And one shot I'm going to take. It ain't the first time for me. I've got one shot at something either. But it may be the last time for you. There we hear from Rowdy, Roddy, Piper, Greg Valentine, Ric Flair. Seems as if Ric Flair, the traveling NWA World Heavyweight Champion, would be departing the area very soon. If Roddy Piper seems to only have one shot against him, but Roman, as we know, doesn't matter if Flair is going to be there or not, even though he was the one who started all of this stuff, Roddy Piper wants to take his frustrations out seemingly more on to Greg the Hammer Valentine, who also is, of course, the United States heavyweight champion. Yeah, they didn't finish Piper off. You know, they uh, poked the Cobra with a stick, so to speak. They got him all riled up and fired up and, uh, they did some damage to him, but you can't keep Hot Rod down. So he's back looking for revenge. And uh, it's kind of interesting to see before that, the, to see Bill After with hair. So if anybody wants to see what that's like, uh, you can see Bill After with hair as he presented the inspirational award to Roddy Piper. And that day, Bill After also presented the most improved award in Florida to Barry Windham. So it was a busy day for Bill After. I always liked when they would do the segments where a wrestler would get a PWI award like that. It, to me, it was just kind of a fun, fun as a fan to see stuff like that. That particular edition, uh, year-end edition of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, has got Bob Backlund on the cover. He won PWI's Wrestler of the Year that year. The Tag Team of the Year went to the High Flyers of Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel. Match of the Year, Bob Backlund against Jimmy Superfly Schnooka. Most popular wrestler, Andre the Giant. The most hated wrestler, Ted DiBiase. The most improved wrestler, as Roman mentioned, Barry Windham. Most inspirational, as you heard, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Rookie of the Year, Brad Armstrong. The PWI Editor's Award goes to the legendary NWA champion, Luthez. And the Manager of the Year, James J. Dillon, whose reputation was beginning to blossom in the state of Florida. We would see that come into our area in 1984, but that would be jumping the gun too much on that. By the way, the other inspirational names that were following Roddy Piper on that list, two of the three runner-ups uh, were mostly known for their heel work <laughs> up until 1982. Not only was Piper a bad guy most of the year, so was Jimmy Superfly Schnooka, who ended up becoming the first runner-up, the second runner-up, 
the perennial good guy, Mil Mascaris. And then the third runner-up, the boogie-woogie man himself, Jimmy Valiant, who we, of course, chronicled all throughout 1982. Coming into the area, the last time he was seen, he was King James alongside Lord Alfred Hayes. Came into Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, didn't miss a beat. Only Anderson put him with Ivan Koloff, and the rest was history. And here we are with Jimmy Valiant, feuding heavily now with the House of Humperdinck, which of course would <laughs> move on and end up becoming the feud with the Paul Jones Army that uh, would go on almost until the end of Jim Crockett promotions. But I digress too much there. The show went to break. When we came back, Bruiser Brody was standing inside the ring. He's facing off against Vinny Valentino, and this could have been much worse for young Valentino. Match won a minute and 56 seconds. Some big forearms to the chest, some big Brody body slams. Finish came after that impressive big man dropkick Brody would throw. And then the King Kong knee drop for the victory. Brody was in for a couple of weeks during the holidays to help Sir Oliver Humperdinck against Jimmy Valiant. And we wouldn't see much from him after this, Roman. But still, impressive to see Bruiser Brody inside of a Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling Studio ring. Yes, and this match went exactly the way it should have. You know, just total annihilation by Bruiser Brody. Finished him off in about two minutes and then hit that flying knee drop that was just so impressive to see for a big man. And match went exactly the way it should have. New TV champion Mike Rotundo then joined Bob Cottle to talk about keeping faith both in and out of the ring. He thanked his friends, the Briscoes and Jimmy Valiant, to help show him the light on how to deal with these bad guys in the area. Cottle coached him along pretty well here as well. And really, it seems like Mike Rotundo's comfort level during interviews is increasing. He doesn't have to go on for too long before the boogie-woogie man came bouncing back out, got a hug and a kiss and a, a promo that we can barely, barely hear because of the overdub that WWE has going on. Hands are slapped, hips are bumped, and we fade to black. But Roman, a, I thought, even though it didn't go on for a long time, a, a marked improvement considering, you know, some of the hostage video faces that we've made, you know, seen make, you know, Mike Rotundo make during some of these promos. Yeah, and I had mentioned earlier in that tag match how he no-sold the one-man gang splash, but, you know, just thinking about it, recently Orton and Valiant came out and did the interview where they said, Rotundo had crashed like three cars into a ditch and the, the th his mom wouldn't be happy with him. So maybe they did toughen up Rotundo and maybe that's why he no-sold in that first match. <laughs> Next up, we have Don Carnoodle and Tommy Gilbert. And as the match began, Cottle put over Bruiser Brody from the previous match before he turned his attention towards one half of the NWA World Tag Team Champions, Mr. Carnoodle, who was facing off against the patriarch of the Tennessee wrestling family. A very good older-style traditional TV match. You got working to front face locks and headlocks and small package reversals and all the trimmings. Carnoodle dominated the majority of it time-wise, although Gilbert did have a few moments of hope throughout the match. Towards the end of the deal, Gilbert missed a shoulder block into the corner and hit the post, which led to Carnoodle delivering a back suplex for a two-count. It's at this point where the veteran got about 90 seconds of solid offense in until Carnoodle went back after Gilbert, went after his eyes, went after his throat. And from here, the champion poured it on and took on a whole lot of characteristics of his tag team partner, Sergeant Slaughter, as Carnoodle would use three swinging neck breakers before he climbed up to the second rope and came off with a cannon clothesline. 
didn't go for the pin. He then dropped two knee drops to Gilbert's throat and locked on the Cobra Clutch that Gilbert valiantly tried to break. He rolled through it. Cronoodle kept it locked on. Gilbert went and climbed over the top rope. Cronoodle kept it locked on, dragged him back over the ropes and into the ring. And with Gilbert not being able to get out and the fact that Cronoodle did not break the hold once that Gilbert got into the ropes, Stu Schwartz called for the bell at the 9 minute and 7 second mark. It's a DQ win for Tommy Gilbert, but that's not the end of the story. After the bell, Cronoodle continued to keep the hold on until Ricky Steamboat hit the ring, came off the top rope with a chop to the back of Cronoodle's head, causing him to break the hold and bail out of the ring. Steamboat and Cronoodle would jaw with each other for a little bit as the show went to commercials, so even though we don't have Jay Youngblood and Sergeant Slaughter in the house, the hot feud between Steamboat and Youngblood against Cronoodle and Slaughter, Roman, continues on. Yeah, they did a good job furthering that angle in this match, and many younger fans may only know Tommy Gilbert as Eddie Gilbert's dad or a referee in the Universal Wrestling Federation, but Gilbert was an accomplished wrestler. And in this match, you know, he sold early on. He made Cronoodle look good. Then he put on a little bit of a comeback. And, you know, this was a good TV match. And like you alluded to, you know, Cronoodle showing the heel-type tactics, the three neckbreakers, which back then the neckbreaker was a devastating move. You know, guys like the Mass Superstar used that as a finisher. And, in fact, he put Tommy's son, Eddie Gilbert, in the hospital, storyline-wise, by using the neckbreaker. And, you know, just not letting go of the Cobra Clutch. And even when Gilbert was on the apron, dragging him back in, just Cronoodle was really playing the heel good here. And it took Ricky the Dragon Steamboat to come in and break it up. And the crowd went wild. And this was just a fun, old-style match that made sense. And this was a good match to watch. So, obviously, Ricky Steamboat getting involved made Don Cronoodle very, very angry. Steamboat exited the studio. Cronoodle stood by with Bob Cottle and expressed some of those angry words that he had for Jay Youngblood and Ricky Steamboat before Sir Oliver Humperdinck joined Bob to offer his first words of the day. Hump is sporting a fresh bandage over his left eye from the tag team cage matches he's been involved with over the holidays. Alongside Paul Jones and the one-man gang, he continues his war of words against Roddy Piper, Jimmy Valiant, and Mike Rotundo. There's a ringside, Don Canoodle. Don, you refused to break the hole. Rick Steamboat came came after you, and you took off like a scalded dog, Don. Yeah, Sergeant Slaughter couldn't be here tonight because he had some important business with Ronald Reagan at the White House. But as 83 rolls around, I see we're having the same problems we had in 82. Steamboat and Youngblood interfering in our matches. Every time we wrestle, they want to interfere in our matches. As you can plainly see, I had the man beat right there in the middle of the ring with a cobra. Sergeant Slaughter has been teaching me how to use a cobra. I had him beat right there. And what happened? Ricky Steamboat comes in. He runs in. Well, let me tell you, Steamboat, if you get in Slaughter and Cronoe's way, you must pay. And pay is exactly what you're going to do. We're getting sick and tired. Every time you get in the ring, you're running in. Run, young blood running in. Causing a lot of confusion. Let me tell you something. We got a surprise for you. There's only one thing left to do. Only one thing left to do. And that's to hurt both of you's neck and put you out of wrestling for good. In 83, I promise you, Steamboat. I promise you, Youngblood. Sergeant Slaughter promised you. You will pay. Both of your necks will be hurt. And you will be out of wrestling once and for all. And Cronulla and Slaughter will reign 
the World Tag Team Champions, 0383, and from then on. Take it from me, you're going down and you're finished. All right, fans, here are the one half of the World Tag Team Champions, Don Canoto, Sir Oliver. You know, Humberty. it's a sorry yeah. state of affairs when people can't even conduct their business without having to worry about watching their back and watching these little panty waists like Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood running in on you and running in on you. Well, we had a problem like that with Piper, and we took care of it. You don't see Piper around his TV station today because he's barred. He can't appear here. Well, ain't that too bad. The House of Humperdinck, 1983, baby. Take a look at it. Take a look at the two members I brought with me today. The one-man gang and, of course, Paul Jones. And you just saw him in action a few minutes ago right here on your own video sets. And you saw what a devastating tag teams. As long as Canodal is out here talking about tag teams, how about the one I put together? Well, huh? uh, how yeah, about Jimmy fantastic. Valiant? How yeah. about Mike Rotundo? You can ask him what it feels like to be in the ring with these two animals. It hurts. Paul Jones, I want you to say a few words to the many legions of fans that you have out here. Right, Paul. You know, we got back to the dressing room all ago, and I, it did my heart good that, to see the, the smile on my manager here, his face, the satisfaction he had for the victory of the one-man gang and number one Paul Jones. And, and just, just to go to show you that the family... The House of Humperdinck hey, is not dead. There's a lot of talk. Piper's spreading it around. Piper's Palace. He's got this guy, Abdullah the Butcher. He's got Jimmy Valiant. He's got this guy. He's got Bob Orton Jr. Well, let me tell you something. Piper's Palace in 1983 will fall to the House of Humperdinck as surely as I'm standing here talking to you right now. And there we hear from Sir Oliver Humperdinck, the one-man gang growling in the background, number one Paul Jones. And before that, one half of the NWA World Tag Team Champions, Don Cronoodle, expressing his thoughts on getting revenge against Jay Youngblood and Ricky Steamboat. Ricky Steamboat and Don Cronoodle wouldn't be the last the two would uh, see or hear of each other, as we will find out a little bit later on, Roman. But it was time for our next match, the Briscoe Brothers, Jack and Jerry against Ken Timms and Jim Dalton. And Jack Briscoe is still the Mid-Atlantic Heavyweight Champion. This match went eight minutes, four seconds. Briscoe made Dalton submit to the figure four leg lock, Roman, and this was not a reinvention of the wheel. This was a lot of the Briscoes working the legs, leg locks, head locks, arm locks, all that sort of stuff that you'd expect. Very crisp, very good stuff. And then ultimately Jack made Dalton submit, but just good, just good, fine workmanship in this match. Workmanship? Is that a word? You know what I mean. Exactly. And Dalton and Tim's, you know, when I saw that they were going up against the Briscoes, I was expecting a, a decent TV match, and and uh, it didn't disappoint. You know, Dalton and Tim's are two good underneath talents, and, you know, we've sung the praises of Dalton for weeks now, and Tim Tim's is a good underneath guy, and they made the Briscoes work a little bit to get the victory, and, you know, Jack played the figure four, and that was all she wrote. As you can tell already from the podcast, this was just a very good workmanlike meat and potatoes kind of program to move everything forward. Nothing exceptional, nothing explosive going on as we move more towards March 12th and the road to Greensboro. These shows would would heat up quite a bit, but a lot of good stuff, just solid stuff going on here, Roman, and... Because of that, there were not a whole, there wasn't really a whole lot of audio to cut of any notes. So what I decided to do was to leave in the in lieu of promo 
as the rest of the local viewership was was watching all of the events that would be coming up into their towns. For Jack and Jerry Briscoe, they had a chance to fill two minutes and 28 seconds, and I thought did a did a fine little job of it here after their match against Dalton and Tim. So let's take a listen to that right now. Exciting. We just saw him in action. And fellas, I tell you, always great to see you two pair together, Jerry and Jack Briscoe. Jerry? Well, there's nothing like it, Bob, when you got a, t- a tag team partner. That's your brother. That you know that's if right. it's right there in your corner anytime you need him, you know his actions, you know what he's going to do. It's just great. And uh, I tell you, it's a thrill. But one thing, one thing here, and Jack's got something to talk about, Bob. And All right. Right, Jack. Well, I tell you what. The house of Humperdinck is shaking, it's crumbling. Because, you know, Mike Rotondo just won the TV championship. I've just won the Mid-Atlantic championship. Now Humperdinck is worried, he's scared to death. He's bringing in all these new men, all these big giants. These big ones, aren't they? Yeah, all these giants <laughs> think he's going to get the job done. But all these big men, well, we got news for him. We're going to run them off just like we ran the rest of them off. And a personal message to Humperdinck and Paul Jones. Joe DeLaDuke, Bruiser Brody, the one-man game. This belt's up for grabs, and I'm sure that goes for Rotondo, too. And let me tell you something I'm glad to see. Jay Youngblood back in action. Him and Ricky Steamboat are hot on that Sergeant Slider's trail. And that Don Canoodle, believe me, before it's over, they're going to be world champions. Then Jerry and I might put in a challenge for that ourselves. Hey, how about that? I expect that's quite possible, isn't it? Boy, it is possible. We wish uh, Youngblood and Steamboat all the luck in the world. But when you're champions, everybody's after you. We're going to be after you. There's also a $100,000 man out there that everybody's got their eye on. I'm speaking of Dory Funk Jr. Anytime you can get a funk in the ring, brother, I'm game for that. Well, as you say, $100,000, man, that's that's quite a little bounty right $100, there. $100,000 is an awful lot of money. You know, of course, Ric Flair makes a lot of money. This Mid-Atlantic Championship makes me a lot of money. Right. But if I get a match with that Dory Funk Jr., I'm the man that defeated him before. He, and he knows well I am the man that can beat him. He's talking about extending the time limits to instead of 15 minutes to 30 minutes. Well, that's just fine with me. He just gives us an extra chance to the 100 grand. And believe me, Hundred grand would be awful nice in the bank these times when, when so many people's out of work in rough times. And believe me, I, Mr. Funk, you better be ready. Have that check ready and endorse it, cause we're coming after it. That day. right, one hundred thousand dollars. All right, I want to wish you fellas a lot of luck. Thank you for coming Amen. by, Fans, That's it right here at ringside. So there we hear from Jack and Jerry Briscoe. Sometimes Jack Briscoe's promos, much like his TV matches. Well, they can be a little bit dry. So I thought uh, even though they were huffing and puffing a little bit there, the Briscoe brothers cutting a promo, I thought in fine form, running down everything that was taking place in the area, and not the least of which was Dory Funk Jr., who just got finished with Sweet Brown Sugar, still with his $100,000 challenge up on the line. And, of course, you get a Brusco and a, a Funk anywhere near each other, there, there's always going to be a whole lot of tension, but then Jerry left the podium, leaving Jack and Bob there for a proper interview segment that everyone watching the show, no matter where they were, would see. And now Jack is holding a Polaroid picture of a young child named Gerard who's in a hospital bed, and he's being visited by Roddy Piper, who, oh, by the way, as as we recall, is your 1982 most inspirational professional wrestler of the year as voted on by you 
the fans of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. All right, fans, and with us right now, Jack Briscoe. Jack? Well, I got a little friend here of Roddy Piper's, and uh, Roddy couldn't be here. Of course, he's banned from TV, but he wanted me to tell Gerard hello. And so from all of us, Gerard, hello to you. Now, I want to get out into some serious business here about the Mid-Atlantic Championship belt, the television championship belt, and the house of Humperdinck that is crumbling and falling and caving in all around him. He's bringing on all these giants trying to run us off. But we're still the champions, and we remain, we're going to remain the same. And believe me, there's going to be a lot of hot action. He's bringing in all these big uh, bruiser, brody, one-man gang, and all that's what I'm telling you something. We're all ready. Ricky Steamboat's ready. We're all ready. We're going to come after him. Jack, good luck to you. Thank you, Bob. All right, fans, and speaking of being ready, we're ready in the ring now with action. Rick Steamboat and Masa Fuji. Yes, we are ready for action with Ricky Steamboat and Masafuchi, which would be our televised main event. But Roman, it's pro wrestling. It's inspiration. We got to pour it on thick here, don't we? And this is not at all to demean the picture of a child that looked like uh, that they uh, were lacking hair, possibly, obviously, uh, one would be led to believe just looking at a Polaroid to be a cancer patient being visited in the hospital by Rowdy Piper. But, uh, you know, it's a lot of times men and women in the wrestling business would do this and we, we wouldn't get the Polaroid of it, but damn it, he is the 1982, 19, <laughs> 1982 Pro Wrestling Illustrated Inspirational Wrestler of the Year. So we do get it here by proxy uh, via Jack Briscoe as, as Piper is nowhere to be seen this week. Yeah, I, th- I thought they could have done that a little bit different. Maybe show a video of Piper with the kid in the hospital. I thought that might have been a little more effective than a Polaroid picture that you could hardly see. So Roddy Piper, amazing that a man that was so reviled for most of the year, after he was stabbed, after the face turn, you know, it just it's amazing <laughs> to where his fandom got to where we are talking about him being the happy baby face when it comes to Ric Flair and Greg Valentine and and becoming the inspirational wrestler of the year. It's just, it's absolutely amazing. It, It really, really is. But after that was all done, as you heard, as Jack Briscoe wrapped up, Ricky Steamboat was standing in the ring wearing a red shirt. Maybe saying, Mike, why are you noting that Ricky Steamboat before his match was wearing a red shirt? Because he would put on said red shirt after the match as well. He faces off against Masanobu Fuchi. Five minutes and 20 seconds of just good stuff where Fuchi really had Steamboat on the ropes for most of it. Showed off how good Ricky was at selling. Showed off how good Fuchi was at the basics. You could see why All Japan Pro Wrestling had a lot of high hopes for him. And you could see why Ricky Steamboat's just one of the, the best wrestlers in the world, Roman. Oh, without a doubt. And and Fuchi using the short arm scissors and then rolling around the ring with Steamboat while still in the short arm scissors. It's just a good visual. It's not something you see every day, you know, and it shows how how good Fuchi was in the ring. And then, you know, Steamboat at the end by applying the abdominal stretch. Some people call it an octopus, but it was basically like an abdominal stretch. And he puts his left leg on the on the neck of Fuji and pushes down and applies pressure to get the win. And uh, this was just a good match to watch. Yeah, he beat him with the Enoki Octopus. You know, the Enoki Octopus abdominal stretch. And 
earlier on, Fucci used the Kiwi leg roll that Abe Jacobs uh, used, and I thought that was that was really cool. It was just it was it was one of those matches that you know nobody else would have probably wanted to see it. In hindsight, being twenty twenty, but you put that match. Give me that match today. Give me twenty minutes of that. <laughs> Let that thing go for like eighteen fifty seven with those two guys well, trading back and forth with each other. Just just outstanding. And Ricky Steamboat, you know, working alongside Fuji, it made Fuji better in the fact that Steamboat was fresh off of working Japan in the All World Tag League. You know, he comes over and it's not Fuji having to work around other guys because, you know, the the he's still getting familiar with the American style. It was Steamboat being able to, you know, meld his into Fuji, which, I mean, if he just melded his style to Fuji anyway, it would have been great, but he just got back from Japan, so that was fresh in his mind, too. Yeah, and, you know, like Arn Anderson used to say repeatedly in interviews, the, the name on the marquee is wrestling, and wrestling is what you got in this match. You know, there wasn't stomping and kicking and punching, you know, for 10 minutes or anything. They wrestled, which made it fun to see. And you can't have pro wrestling without a little bit of action. And we get that at the end of this show here as maybe vanilla, as we've been speaking uh, about when it comes to this show, we got a little bit of of fire at the end of it. I mentioned that red t-shirt that Ricky Steamboat had on. Well, he puts it on after his match. Now we've seen guys put on robes or sling their towel over their shoulder or something like that before they go over to the to the interview desk and and talk to Bob, but we didn't usually see that from Ricky Steamboat, and that probably should have set off a little sign in our minds, especially when we couldn't really read what was on that shirt, that something was to come, and that something came in the form of Don Cronoodle, who was still a little fired up over what took place between him and Steamboat earlier on in the program. Hey, tremendous matchup there, Rick. Great win for you. Thank you very much, Bill. You know, everybody knows that competition around this particular area, I guess all the fans have sort of taken notice, opened their eyes, because you know the different types of talents That's right. that have been coming in now just at the desk here. Yeah. Each week they seem to be, Humperdinck seems to be bringing somebody new. And I was listening to some of the comments about what Don Canoodle was making oh. about myself. Well, Don Canoodle, you and Sergeant Slaughter... If you recall, all the times in the year of 1982 that you all did your run-ins, that you all were looking out for each other, protecting each other, watching each other's back, before you guys started tag-teaming, when you guys were in single matches. If Slaughter was in the ring in a big coliseum, you see Canoodle down at the locker room behind the door just watching, just waiting in case Sergeant Slaughter got in trouble. Canoodle would hit the ring. And you've done it a number and a number of times. Now each week, I've said it, Jay Youngblood has said it, Roddy Piper has said it, Jack and Jerry Briscoe, everybody has said it, that these run-ins have got to stop. If they don't cease, the only way to get even, the only way to get back, start fighting a little fire with fire. Right. Put a boot to their face where it needs to be needed. And that's exactly what we're doing. We warned you guys earlier about running. Rick, let me tell Let's you, go. right here behind you, watch your back here. Uh, here here comes Don Canoodle in. I'm sick and tired of what's going on around here, and I'm going to ask you in a nice way to take a back seat and get out of here and let me do some talking around here. 
Stretch. Hey, let me tell you something, Don Kernoodle. One half of the world tag that's team exactly champions. Right. You it very well, nice. I am, bro. That's, that's why exactly Jay and I have right. been beating your can all around yeah, this place. I'll tell you something. This is my interview time. You had your say so in earlier. I listened to you jabber your mouth. Now this is my turn. So why don't you take a hike and go on back to Let your locker room? Being the world tag team champion, yeah, I'll tell you what to do. Gonna, I'm asking you to go, fans, as they go at each other. And here is Steamboat now with a chop. Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling has been furnished to this station for broadcast at this time by yeah, Jim Crockett Promotions right in here, exchange man. for See commercial consideration. As these two go at it, Canodal and Steamboat. As they continue to fight now, as we go off of the air, Canodal and Steamboat slugging it out right here at our desk at ringside. Canodal has got that shirt. He has ripped it to shreds. And they continue to chop and run away at each other. Canoodle now wrapped in the shirt. And here we go to the desk. As Canoodle is on the floor, fans, we'll see you next week. And there we hear a very unique ending to Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. Not only do we have a brawl to take things off the air hot between Ricky Steamboat and Don Cronoodle, we don't get Don Ray's Got to Have Lovin' played, which means we don't get the WWE overdub of music over that, and we just get Bob Cottle calling the action as Cronoodle and Steamboat brawl about by the podium and around side the ring. Cronoodle and Steamboat take things off the air hot, Roman. I thought that was, a uh, again, a really a cool way to end a show that, again, moved, looked, no complaints, moved everything forward nicely, just was not a, a really hot, spectacular kind of show until the end. Yeah, it was a good way to end. And, uh, you know, a couple things I noticed was that Cronoodle early on was not letting go of the belt. You know, Steamboat was getting his punches in and I was kind of like, drop the belt, Don, start fighting back, you know? So he hung onto the belt for a little bit. And then you had mentioned about Steamboat wearing the shirt that came into play towards the end as Steamboat had the shirt over Cornoodle and was wailing away on him, And just an exciting way to end the show. The credits were rolling as they were brawling, you know, Steamboat jumped Cornoodle earlier on in the show. Cornoodle has an altercation with Steamboat to end the show and they just keep moving the needle forward and the road to Greensboro is on the way and uh, the final conflict, uh, what an exciting time that is. And uh, they're doing a great job ma- making you want to see more and more of it. Absolutely. You know, a little extra context there too. Maybe everybody heard the, the ch- change of the pitch of the audio when Steamboat was talking. Hey, this was stuff that was recorded back in, the early 1980s, so occasionally there are some uh, malfunctions at the junction, although that wasn't a bad one at all. Just maybe a little pixelating of the voice there in case you were wondering what was going on there. But also, Cronoodle pulling on that shirt from Ricky Steamboat needed to, to get something to, to grab onto to, to start that fight going between the two of them. And as you mentioned, didn't want to drop the belt there at first, taking some some lickings from Ricky Steamboat and 
again, as, as you mentioned, this road to Greensboro has been fantastic. You know, we've got two of the guys that have really been heating it up, Jay Youngblood because of his injury and Sergeant Slaughter being the guy who's been crowing the loudest about injuring Youngblood, wanting to put him into the graveyard here. It's just been some really awesome stuff, and we look forward to having them back up next week. We'll also look forward to having the United States heavyweight champion Greg the Hammer Valentine back next week. He has been out of the uh, out of the loop, and and obviously Roddy Piper isn't supposed to be in the same studio at the same time with Greg Valentine. But if Valentine's going to be there, Piper is probably not going to be too far away from him, Roman. But any thoughts here as we we wrap up the January first, nineteen eighty three edition of the program in its entirety? Well, something that stuck out in my mind, I think they kind of missed a a good opportunity to do something in that Piper gets presented with the inspirational wrestler of the year. He he gets the plaque handed to Bob Cottle. And, you know, I've joked about it in the past that whenever a wrestler gets a plaque or a trophy, it gets destroyed. That would have been a golden opportunity since Piper was not in the studio. You know, that would have been something that they could have turned that into an angle, you know, where... Piper gets an award, he's not there to get it, and, and a heel comes out and destroys it. I was very shocked to see him getting an award and nothing happening to the award itself. Unlike in 1984 when Angelo Mosca Jr. was presented with the Pro Wrestling, Pro Wrestling Illustrated Rookie of the Year Award, and Ivan Koloff took that and clonked it very audibly <laughs> over the head of Angelo Mosca Jr., who... Well, look, that's one thing we know about those awards. They they weren't made out of uh, balsa wood there. Those were uh, <laughs> those things were official and uh, probably a knot that Moscow wore for quite some time. But that was it for January 1st, 1983. Now, uh, on sister programming on Worldwide Wrestling, we do have the results of that show. And we got Ricky Steamboat knocking off Frank Monty, Tommy Gilbert defeating Ken Timms, Mike Rotundo defeating Masafuchi, Bruiser Brody going over Mark Fleming, and Jack and Jerry Briscoe defeating Ben Alexander and Jim Dalton. Let's take time for this commercial message about the Mid-Atlantic Wrestling events coming up in your area. In addition to the TV tapings on Wednesday night, December 29th, part of the crew was in Sumter, South Carolina at the County Exhibition Center, but we don't have results for that show. So we'll move to Thursday, December 30th at the Norfolk Scope, here are the top matches from that show. Sweet Brown Sugar and Jimmy Valiant defeated Bruiser Brody and Dory Funk Jr. Sergeant Slaughter defeated Ricky Steamboat by disqualification. Jimmy Valiant defeated Joe LaDuke by countout. And Roddy Piper and Bob Orton Jr. defeated Ric Flair and Greg Valentine. On Friday, January 1st in Charlotte, there was an afternoon show that saw Ric Flair defeat Roddy Piper in the main event. Sergeant Slaughter and Private Canoodle also defeated Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood. Greg Valentine defeated Bob Orton Jr. Johnny Weaver and the Briscoes defeated Private Nelson, Paul Jones, and Gene Anderson. Abdul the Butcher and Jimmy Valiant defeated Joe LaDuke and the One Man Gang. Sweet Brown Sugar defeated Dory Funk Jr. And Tommy Gilbert defeated Ricky Harris. January 2nd in Roanoke, an afternoon show at the Civic Center. Top matches there saw Jimmy Valiant, Sweet Brown Sugar, and Abdul the Butcher defeat Dory Funk Jr., the One Man Gang, and Paul Jones. And in the main event, Roddy Piper and Bob Orton Jr. defeated Ric Flair and Greg Valentine. Also on the second in Asheville at the Civic Center, Jack Briscoe defeated Paul Jones, Jay Youngblood defeated Don Carnoodle, and Ricky Steamboat defeated Sergeant Slaughter by disqualification. 
Those shows led to that night in Greensboro at the Coliseum, where Jimmy Valiant Abdul the Butcher defeated Gene Anderson in the One Man Gang, Greg Valentine defeated Bob Orton Jr., Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood defeated Sergeant Slaughter and Don Cronoodle by disqualification, and NWA World Heavyweight Champion Ric Flair battled Roddy Piper to a double disqualification. On January 3rd in Fayetteville at the Cumberland County Civic Center, Bob Orton defeated Bruiser Brody, Dory Funk defeated Sweet Brown Sugar, Roddy Piper defeated Greg Valentine, and Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood defeated Sergeant Slaughter and Don Cronoodle by disqualification. Also on the 3rd in Greenville, Memorial Auditorium was run, but we don't have any results for that show. On January 4th in Raleigh at the Civic Center, Jimmy Valiant, Jack Briscoe, and Jerry Briscoe defeated Dory Funk Jr., Paul Jones, and the One Man Gang, and Roddy Piper defeated Greg Valentine. Also on the 4th in Columbia, South Carolina at Township Auditorium, Bob Orton Jr. defeated Bruiser Brody by disqualification, Abdul the Butcher defeated Joe LaDuke, and Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood defeated Sergeant Slaughter and Don Cronoodle. And that takes us back around to Wednesday, January 5th, 1983, at the WPCQ Studios in Charlotte, North Carolina. And here's the WWE Network preview for next week's show. January 8th, 1983. NWA United States Champion Greg Valentine competes in a six-man tag team match. As I mentioned earlier on, if you like this show and would like to connect with it more, I invite you to follow us across our many forms of social media, especially on Twitter. Just search at MidAtlanticPod. We would also really appreciate you following us on YouTube, youtube.com slash MidAtlanticPod. Full and truncated podcasts, plus great audio and video clips from the rich history of Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling and Jim Crockett Promotions. That's youtube.com slash midatlanticpod. We also have a Patreon as well that you can check out at patreon.com slash midatlanticpodcast. I also invite you to support all of the programs and content here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We don't condescend and we are dedicated to preserving and accurately archiving the history of professional wrestling. And I'm proud that this show, produced by me, can be a part of that. For Roman Gomez, I'm Mike Sempervivi. Take us home, Bob DeBartolabin and Uncle Bob Cottle. Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling has been furnished to this station for broadcast at this time by Jim Crockett Promotions in exchange for commercial consideration. Next week on Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, Bob Overzill and the Mighty Igor against Charlie Fulton and Tony Russo. Mr. Wrestling will take on Larry Sharp, Paul Jones and Wahoo McDaniel against Kim Duck and Ricky Ferrara, Superstar and the Russian Stauber against Francisco Flores and Steve Kovac. And Blackjack Mulligan will take on Phil Mercado all next week.